Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, tracing their origins and finding how they translate to everyday life. Each week we have a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. My week has been full of checking travel requirements due to the updated vaccine travel rules and its costs, which are many, but hey, it protects us all. And as the saying goes, better safe than sorry. And even prevention is better than cure. And I keep telling people that we use metaphors and quotes much more than we really think we do. And what I've just said are great examples. Our metaphor on Metaphorically Speaking this week is teachers open the door, but you must enter by yourself. And our guest, Cornelius Grove, is a true expert of education. With a doctorate in the subject, he is an excellent resource for both teachers and parents. We'll be talking to him about his book later, but before that, let's take a deep dive into his chosen proverb. A teacher can only open the door. You must walk through it. This is a metaphor I'm sure most of us will have heard of, but maybe in another form. Perhaps in give a man a fish and feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you will feed him for a lifetime, or you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. This particular metaphor may seem clear and obvious in that someone can definitely teach you something, but it is up to you to use that information. It opens us up to more questions that we maybe hadn't thought of and quite nicely takes us back to our school days. That was Pink Floyd with their rock opera track about oppressive and brutal teaching. A quick fact before we really get into this week's metaphor is that when Pink Floyd recorded the children in a school nearby to their studios, they kept the lyrics secret from the headmistress as they felt she may not approve of children singing that they didn't need education. This metaphor, of course, brings to mind memories of our school days, but can also be applied to our post-education lives as well, if there is even such a thing as post-education. Maybe you had a favourite teacher at school who could make sense of anything for you. You might have known someone who seemed naturally academic and left revision until the last minute, and they still achieved top grades. All the while, you had to really work your socks off for the subject to even make sense. Perhaps you were someone who absolutely dreaded school and only really started enjoying work once you did something you loved. 
Here's a quick clip from Rick Sanchez, dubbed the world's smartest primate, in the hit adult cartoon Rick and Morty, speaking to his son-in-law about his thoughts on the school system. Listen, Jerry, I don't want to overstep my bounds or anything. It's your house, it's your world, you're a real Julius Caesar. But I'll tell you, so, tell you how, how I feel about school, Jerry. It's a waste of time. Bunch of people running around, bumping into each other. Got guy up front says two plus two, people in the back say four. Then the, then the bell rings, they give you a carton of milk and a piece of paper that says you can go take a dump or something. I mean, it's, it's not a place for smart people, Jerry. Wow, okay, what do you think? Is school a waste of time? I suppose if you were a genius like Rick, you might find school incredibly tedious. For most of us who aren't mad scientists, however, we probably look back at our time at school as an important part of moulding who we are today. School isn't just about doing sums or reading Jane Austen, but it teaches children about how to be more independent, how to make decisions, and hopefully it builds confidence. It's one way in which we prepare kids for adulthood, this idea of independence is reflected in today's phrase. A teacher can really do so much. It is up to the student to be willing and determined to make their own effort. Here's Michelle Obama discussing this a little further. As someone who has hired and managed hundreds of young people over the course of my career, whether it was during my time as a lawyer, as an administrator, as a university, a nonprofit manager, even now as First Lady, I have never once asked someone I was interviewing to explain a test score or a grade in a class. Never. I have never once made a hire just because someone went to an Ivy League school instead of a state school. Never. What I have looked for is what kind of person you are. Are you a hard worker? Are you reliable? Are you open to other viewpoints? Have you stepped outside of your own self-interest to serve others? Have you found a way to serve our country, whether in uniform or in your community? Again and again, I have seen that those are the qualities that I want on my team, because those are the qualities that move our businesses and schools and our entire country forward. And, and, and just understand this. Those are the qualities that you all already embody. They're the values you learned from your parents, from the communities you grew up in. And today, more than ever before, that's what the world needs. My guest this week is interculturalist and educator, Dr. Cornelius Grove, a man who has spent years exploring education in East Asia and why these students often come up on top when it comes to education. His books offer a real insight into his work. So stay with us now to see how you can become a better student. Dr. Grove, what piqued your curiosity to explore cultural factors affecting children's classroom learning? And what did you discover? Well, I guess really it was my doctoral dissertation, which obviously I had to have some interest before I did that. And because I had lived in Portugal for a while and spoke Portuguese well, reasonably well, uh, when it came time to choose my doctoral dissertation at Columbia University, and my field was education, uh, I decided to look at what was going on with immigrant 
Portuguese students who went to school in Portugal in their elementary school years. And then when their parents immigrated at some point after they had been in school in Portugal for a while, then they were brought into American schools, mostly secondary schools, high schools. And I wanted to see what was happening with them. That that was my interest. And so I went to live for three months in a town in Massachusetts that had high immigration from Portugal. And I went to school every day, attended class, watched what was going on, talked to absolutely everybody, teachers, students, parents, administrators, everybody. And out of it came a dissertation that I just found really interesting. I wasn't interested in language at all. I was interested in everything else, how they coming out of one culture of the school system were dealing with another culture of the school system. So they're coming from Portuguese schools to American schools. And what I mainly found is that these students thought that American schools were a joke. Why? Why were they considered a joke? They came into a school system that their observation was, you're not treating us as though we're seriously interested in education. All that goes on here, you're just trying to motivate the students to learn. And there's a lot of fun and games and joking around. And we were serious students in Portugal. To go on and be a secondary school student and get a high school diploma is something that really matters in Portugal. Not every child does that, at least not at that time. And so they came in from a serious school system where learning was very important. And their observation was, this is not serious education. I asked the students once about playing spelling baseball, which is a game that they play in class sometimes. And um, he said in Portuguese, he said, now somos crianças. That means we are not babies. We don't learn this way. That's shocking to me. I've never heard of education being conceived in that way. Uh, In the Caribbean, they take it very seriously. And in terms of the levels of education, I remember when I returned to London, where I think I had about 10 or 11 Oxford O-levels, and all my classmates who had learned in England had maybe four or five. They were shocked that I was allowed to learn that much. So in a way, what you're saying to me, I'm kind of shocked, but I can, un- I can understand why. But from your research and your personal experience, how much of your research um, can be transferable to children's classroom learning in the UK? One thing is Asia, another in the US, but how does it, does it work at all in the UK? Well, my personal research, which is the, the one that I just told you about, would not really apply to the UK unless maybe immigrant students were coming in from Portugal after having gone to American schools. You know, I haven't studied UK schools, but I'm married to a British woman and I've spent quite a bit of time in the UK. So I have a little understanding of what's going on there. And there are some similarities and there are some differences. On the other hand, For the books that we're here to talk about, The Drive to Learn and A Mirror for Americans, I'm not relying on my own research, but on the research of many. And when I say many, I mean literally hundreds of scholars who over the past 50 years have traveled to East Asia, East Asia being 
China, Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and to some extent, Korea. There hasn't been very much of this research in Korea. And they went to try to find out why students in East Asia always outperform American students. And this is most noticeable on the international tests, the comparative tests that have been run for over 50 years now. And the results are always the same. The East Asian students are at or near the top, and the American students are in the middle or below. And virtually every terrorist, every time it's happened. So why is that? That's my interest. And I believe that the explanation is historical and cultural, the main reason. And has and so I probably should stop there because... No, I'd like an explanation because when you say historical and cultural, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's just, as you said earlier, the culture of the parenting and the education system places more importance on education? Yes. Let me say, first of all, why I said historical, because don't look at it from a historical perspective. They look at it from a cultural perspective. I also wrote a history book about this uh, and named The Aptitude Myth, but we're not here to discuss that today. That looks at it historically. It has nothing to do with East Asia, but with American history and European history. Um, in this case, East Asia, the researchers looked not only at what's going on in schools in East Asia, they also looked at what's going on in homes in East Asia. Obviously, homes are where the, the fundamental tenets of a culture are transmitted to infants and young children as they grow up. A very, very important aspect of East Asian culture is the importance of academic learning, and not just the importance of the learning, but the importance of the effort, the perseverance required to learn to mastery. And so by the time children first arrive at school, they have and we're talking in big generalizations here, obviously this is not true of every single one, but relying on the research that was done on homes in East Asia, which is reported in my book, The Drive to Learn, the students show up at the classroom door with a drive to learn that outpaces anything that we're accustomed to here in the United States. They, they are receptive to the idea of learning from an expert, that is to say, a teacher in this case, in a classroom situation. And this is a deep, deep aspect of East Asian culture. Now, I also relied on research that looked at schools, at what's going on in schools. I only looked at elementary schools, preschool and primary school. And, you know, jumping to the conclusion there, what I found was this. Whereas in America right now, there is enormous emphasis on classrooms and lessons being student-centered. This is a very, very big thing in the United States education and has been for some decades. East Asians don't think about that. They're not interested if the class is student-centered or teacher-centered. Their classes are knowledge-centered. 
And that's really the big finding about why they, you know, these two things together, the students drive to learn, which they learn from their extended families. And then when they get to school, the knowledge-centered focus of the lesson, not student-centered, but knowledge-centered, these are the two things that make the difference. And the schools, the school side is reported in my more recent book, A Mirror for Americans. That's what that. So these two books together are sister volumes. One looks at the home side of the explanation. One looks at the school side of the explanation. What type of reader would benefit from reading your books? Uh, there's no question that the drive to learn would be of interest to American parents. I believe this is primarily who I had in mind as I was doing this book. Not all Americans are going to be happy with it because they think that schools should be student-centered and uh, kids should participate in sports. They should be well-rounded. They should uh, be sociable. They should be popular. They should be into all kinds of activities at school and all that's very well. But then academics tends to suffer in most cases, whereas for East Asian students, <laughs> you know, it's all about learning. I mean, it's that's just, that's their main thing. And that is pretty much their only thing in some families. And the way their parents relate to them is quite different from the way American parents in most cases relate to their children about education. The one about schools, I think parents would be interested in that too, but that is really more addressed to educators and people who for some reason have an interest in preschool and primary school education in the United States. Dr. Grove, how does the metaphor teachers open the door but you must enter by yourself reflect your life or your life's work? I chose the metaphor that you suggested quite easily because uh, although it doesn't say much about my life, it uh, does say something about what I've learned. And what I've learned is that teachers aren't absolutely necessary to the learning process. They've streamlined things. They have a good sense of what the steps should be as one works up and goes through harder and more demanding material. But they aren't absolutely necessary. And what really is necessary is a deep desire on the part of the student or the learner to learn or master the material. And that is what makes the difference. And this is the main difference, in my view, between East Asian and American students. The East Asians simply have, for cultural reasons, a deeper, more passionate drive to learn. Dr. Grove, can you tell us where we can find your books so we can read yes, them? Yes, thank you for asking. Um, each of these two books has its own website. The one that's about homes, A Drive to Learn, has the website adrivetolearn.info. And the one about schools, A Mirror for Americans, has its own website, amirrorforamericans.info. Info. But if you forget all that, if you just look up Cornelius Grove on the web, you'll get to them in about 45 seconds flat. Okay, I might <laughs> test that. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> How intriguing. Who knew that you could teach so much about learning? 
Let's carry on and have a look at the origins of schooling. This episode's phrase is an old Chinese proverb which highlights the balance of learning and self-motivation. The quote has probably been around for as long as people have been teaching, which as you can imagine is thousands of years. The word education comes from Latin ex meaning out of and ducere meaning to lead, so literally to lead out of. Latin educare had the root sense of to bring up or rear a child, literally leading them out of childhood. Since the main job of childbearing is education, I suppose, the word gained its more specific sense. But thinking about this etymology helps us to understand education and its history in a number of ways. Because it can be said that the history of education is the history of civilization. One of the purposes of education is to perpetuate and extend a culture's values and knowledge into the future. So therefore the content of education is culturally specific. Education reflects societal values. And so we can think of education as a kind of leading or directing in more ways than one. The practice of schooling has its beginnings almost 4,000 years ago in ancient Egypt. It was the young males of the royal families who were taught to read and write, whilst the females were taught cooking and housework by their mothers. Schooling had a focus on the training of life skills that would be useful to them later on, rather than a mountain of various topics like we have today. And so classes catered to a limited number of professions, namely priests, scribes, doctors, and pharaohs. Jumping forward about 2,000 years later to Israel, schooling found a different focus. Using the Torah as its main teaching tool, an emphasis was placed on memory skills as well as oral repetition. The importance of education spread throughout the Middle East and towards India, where teaching women was seen as vital. Then it continued to China, which had a strong focus on philosophy. But it's ancient Greece that we think of when we imagine the start of schooling. With the most famous masters of thinking, the three philosophers, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, each being a teacher to the next. Here's historian Eugene Weber with a little more. Now last time, if you recall, we ended with the concept of Sophia, or wisdom, which was so important to the ancient Greeks. They had come to believe that the wisest man was the best man, and that his wisdom could be taught even to the poorest, even to the humblest among them. Now, these days, of course, it's sometimes hard to understand why the Greeks made such a lot of fuss about things of this nature. In fact, our modern view of philosophy in general is that it is abstract and divorced from the real world. But the Greeks had to conquer their wisdom bit by bit, and they found it fascinating as they ascertained it precisely because it helped them make better sense of the world they lived in. So they did the hard work for us and their thoughts about nature and reality and God have so profoundly influenced us that we now take them for granted. But school in ancient times was very often private, afforded to the families who could pay, and in ancient Greece because it was not 
uncommon for educators to be slaves, parents could choose what their children learned. This raises the question, is it more important to have a great teacher or is having more choices in what you can learn needed to craft a better student? However we feel about school, there's no denying its importance. To carry civilization forward, we must always remember the past. The nourishing mother of studies is the rather beautiful and inspiring motto of the University of Bologna in Italy. Founded nearly 1,000 years ago, the oldest university in the world is still in operation. Imagine scurrying through the echoey corridors or reading a book in the dimly lit library. Now imagine the millions of others before you doing the exact same thing. Isn't it a wonderful trait of humans that we can learn? Here's a final clip of Robin Williams in the award-winning Dead Poets Society. Words and language. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Now see that look in Mr. Pitt's eye, like 19th century literature, has nothing to do with going to business school or medical school, right? Maybe. Mr. Hopkins, you may agree with them, thinking, yes, we should simply study our Mr. Pritchard and learn our rhyme and meter and go quietly about the business of achieving other ambitions. A little secret for you. Huddle up. Huddle up! We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, Oh me, O oh life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. The powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? Today's metaphor, teachers open the door, but you must enter by yourself, has been a really interesting look into both what makes a great teacher, along with what makes a successful student. Passing on our knowledge is such an important part of being human and this week's proverb is a really great one to learn from. So next time you're faced with the challenge of learning something new, just remember that it truly is within your power to do it, no matter how great your teacher is. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore. I hope it brought back memories of past school teachers and friends. 
I know it did for me, like my teachers, Mr. Morgan and Miss Marsden, who everyone thought was really strict. But one day it was raining outside and we had to stay in over lunch and do um, read magazines and play games and whatever. And she was doing some needle, like needle craft. And I actually took mine out and started doing it. And she looked at me and she smiled and everyone was like, oh my gosh, she smiled. I remember that. Uh, and that was at um, Gladstone Park Primary School, in case you're wondering. And then I brought back memories to me um, of being at William Gladstone um, Secondary School. It was the first year we were the new students there. And my best friend was Pam Joseph. Remember, she was at Choice FM. And she cried all morning the day that I left the school because we were going back to St. Lucia. I'll tell you some wonderful memories. Don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at colorful.com under presenters or at delia at metaphoricallyspeaking.uk. We'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify, and all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe there because it's only when you subscribe, of course, we build, and then we can continue to produce the best content for you to enjoy. Join us for another Metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Keep safe. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Metaphorically Speaking, created by Delia Delore Productions with original distribution by Colourful. This episode was hosted by Delia Delore and had segments written by Jack Campbell and Sabrina Lauchopra Garcia. Script supervisor, Sabrina Lauchopra Garcia. Production assistants and social media graphics by Odwa Osemwenke. The final programme was edited by Sean Price and social media videos by Ernie Deneve and social media direction and videos by Yuri Meniz-Tarone.